All right, let's turn to, together to Mark chapter 6. Last, uh, well, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Last week I uh, opened by talking about how it was a text that I wasn't really, you know, excited about preaching initially. And then once I got into it, I got more excited. And then I should have known then because the next paragraph in my Bible, the title is The Death of John the Baptist. Um, this one is another one where I was like, man, back to back, back to back texts that I'm not real sure how to preach. Last week, Jesus sent the apostles out, you know, gave them some instructions and stuff like that. But this week, this is all about the death of John the Baptist. And it took me a while into the week, you know, and I was kind of just sharing with different people. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not real sure how to do this one. You know, like it's just kind of, it's one of those stories where it's there, but I'm not real sure like how to preach it. Um, and so then I was reminded, the Lord reminded me that when we started off in Mark together, uh, this was before the churches came together. Um, we started off, uh, the Lord was like, look, like he was kind of talking with me one day about this, like preaching through a gospel and just kind of dealing with, like helping me out a little bit. And, um, he's like, look, you need to study this. Uh, you need to like, you need to study your way through it. Um, like not just like research my way through it, not just, uh, break out the commentaries and all the seminary books and all that kind of stuff. Not like that. Like you, you need to just like, like as a disciple, as a son, as like that needs to be your, your initial dive into all these passages. Um, just read it, like sit on your bed and just read it like a disciple. And in doing that, I, like, I, it just, it reminded me of how difficult that can be, especially like in my line of work when, when I have all these books, you know, I have all these like scholars just sitting on my shelf that have already done all that, you know, they've already dug into it. They've already done all the, all the hard work. I just get to just piece that together and bring something to the table. And the Lord was like, no, you need to approach this just like everyone else needs to approach this and then bring that stuff in later on. And he kind of like brought me to like a really simple like method, which is like whenever you go into any passage, you can you can really ask two two questions. And some of you guys that were on the Living Hope side before the merger might remember this. There's really two questions that can get you through any any passage of scripture, because in every text, God, there are things that He wants us to know, and there are things that He wants us to do. And so it's very simple. You start off and you're like, okay, in this passage, what does God want me to know? Like, like it's, how is it, does it inform me? And then um, is there anything that, based on this passage he wants me to do? And sometimes those are connected. So sometimes there'll be a passage that's really explicit when he's like, go and do this. You know, that, that, that's what you put in your, what does he want me to do list. It's really explicit. Sometimes it's just, it is just in, informing us about the narrative of the Bible, the, the, the character of God. The, these are, are things that we're just supposed to know. And so whether it's, it's about knowledge or it's about action, we can always come away with things that help us to love the Lord more. That our, our knowledge of God helps us to love him. And in that love, we go and we join him in his work together. And that just makes him love him more as well. And so whether it's, whether it's commandment one or commandment two, whether we're, we're knowing things or we're doing things, or it's a combination of both, 
every text we come, we come to, can, it can help us love him more. And so when I got to this one, I was trying to, I think I, got, I was trying to be a little too fancy with it. And the Lord was like, hey, how about you just go back to those two questions? Thank you. So that's how I want to approach it this morning. Based on this passage about the death of John the Baptist, what does God want us to know? What does God want us to do? Let me read it for us. This is in chapter 6 of Mark, starting in verse uh, 14. King Herod heard of it. Okay, and the it meaning like Jesus, his, his miracles, his teaching, his, his fame. Okay, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had, had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, and now, now this, then it kind of becomes like a flashback, a little bit of like, let's kind of just give the backstory here. It says, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your, your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, so now do you see why I was a little bit like, how do you preach that? Like, what's the, like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, don't behead John the Baptist. That's the takeaway, right? And so I just began to ask God, like, God, what, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to do based on this? And there is, there are, I wrote down seven notes things to know, and one thing to do. So if you're a note taker, there you go. I'm going to cruise through these a little bit. There's some things he wants us to know. Here's the first one. He wants us to know that the word of Jesus' ministry was spreading. So as we study the gospel of Mark, there is a, it, it, is, a, it is a narrative, like it is a story that is being like told. And so at this point in the story, it's important for us to know, like kind of in a macro sense, that what Jesus was doing was not remaining uh, isolated in these little villages in Galilee. The word was spreading. 
And that was a lot harder to do back then than it is now. And so this is a, this is like a, a thing, like there's this momentum that's happening. And it's, it's even, even to the like higher points of government. So I know that it says, well, if you look at verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. But first of all, Herod wasn't really a king. In fact, he was ultimately killed because he was trying to like, um, so he was trying to gain so much power and sovereignty that he was eventually put down because he was trying to be king. And so there's different, different guesses as to why Mark uses this word. Some think that he was kind of mocking him, which I think is funny to me. But um, regardless, he wasn't really a, a king. He was part of a, a, of a, he was a tetrarch. And so he was a part of a, like a four kind of governors over this, this big piece of land, let's say. And so um, his, his dad passed away, and then the, the, the four sons, or three sons and a daughter, got different parts of the, of the kingdom, uh, so to speak. But uh, this was all under Roman control. And so he wasn't really a king, but he was the like, ruling authority in the land. And so uh, this is the same Herod, like Herod Antipas, that Jesus would eventually stand in front of uh, during his own trial. Um, and interestingly enough, at least to me, this is, you don't have to look at this verse, but in Luke 23, when, by the time that Jesus got to Herod in, in his presence, it says, it's 23, eight says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so word about Jesus was getting to Herod and he was very intrigued by what he was hearing. And so Jesus was not just kind of walking around, blessing people in kind of a meek and mild kind of way. Like he was stirring some stuff up. Like if, if there were things going on and the governor of Louisiana heard about it in one of his staff meetings, you know, like that's kind of what would be happening. It's like, what? Like this was like a, a big deal. And so with the things that Jesus was stirring up was like it was, there was momentum to it. A lot of people were talking. Um, he was kind of a peaceful instigator. And God wants us to know that, um, that he was engaging in such a way that it, was, it got a lot of people talking. So that's the first thing he wants us to know, is that the word of his ministry was spreading. Second thing is that everyone was seeking an explanation for his miracles and his teaching. Like, so they would hear what was going on, and just part of human nature, they're like, okay, we need to, we need to figure this out. We figure out what's going on. If you look at verse 14, the second half of it, um, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's human nature that when, when God is at work, people are intrigued and they want to understand what's going on. Like they want an explanation for what is happening. Um, and that is important. And we'll, I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Third thing. God wants us to know that there's some form of relationship between John and Herod. We don't really know how to, how to define it, but look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay? He had been saying it to him, and that reads to me like this was not like a one-off kind of thing. That there was some sort of interaction between John the Baptist and Herod. Now the story, uh, which it's, it's all in here, um, Herod had married his brother's wife. Her name is Herodias. 
Um, and that gets a little confusing, at least for me, when I'm reading it, because Herod is like the root of, both, of all that. But Herodias is, is the wife of his brother. And so he has married her. And so uh, that, is the, that is the point of tension that John is, is addressing. But it says he had been, had been telling him, hey, this is, it's wrong for this to, to be happening. Verse 19 Herodias, so that's the wife, had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So Herod like, was like, well, I, I know that, that uh, calm down, Herodias, I understand that you want him dead, but this dude is not a normal dude. Like This guy is holy, he is righteous, there's something about him and he had to, to learn that somehow. So there was some sort of, of interplay. But then, this is the next, next verse that I think points to this. Verse, other part of verse 20. Sorry, it says, When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That as John is telling him, like, hey man, you're, you're messing up here. It perplexed Herod, but also he was like, but tell me more. You know, like... That makes me feel weird. Keep going. There was some sort of interaction there. And even later on in the story in verse 26, when, it, when he went to like give the orders of execution, he was very sorry that he had to do that. So God wants us to know that there was some kind of relationship there between them. We don't really know how to define it. We don't really know much about it. But it seems to me that Herod didn't know what to make of John, but he was drawn to him. And that we got to pay attention to that. All right, the next point. We're doing all right? Everybody's with me? Okay, next point. God wants us to know that John was not afraid to call something sinful, even to the king. He did not shy away from it. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him up in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, the world we live in is really, I, I wrote the word dainty. I don't know if that's bad or, or good, but that's just the word kept coming to mind. Very dainty when it comes to like saying that something is wrong. You know, like I feel like we're always kind of tiptoeing around uh, like saying that something is like sinful. Something is incorrect. Not John the Baptist. He's like, hey, uh, this is adultery and it's incest. Both, both of these violate God's law. To the king. The king. It didn't really matter to him who it was. What mattered to him was being able to say, this is, a, this is sinful. And you need to know that. That is a very important thing for us to remember. He was not afraid to call something a sin, even to the king. John refused to be silent in the midst of something that dishonored the Lord and dishonored people. It was bad for Herod. It was bad for Herodias. It was bad for Philip. It was bad for everyone. And so John said, well, I am going to make sure that you know that. All right, the next point. The truth spoken by John wasn't totally lost on Herod. 
It wasn't completely lost on him. I read this a minute ago, but look at it again. Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. In his speaking of the truth to Herod, and that tension that it created within him, Herod didn't, didn't run away. It's easy to feel like that would be the case, you know, that you would just automatically get rejected. Yet it wasn't completely lost on him. Now, it didn't completely sink in either, okay? But God wants us to pay attention to that, that tension of he was perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. And a part of how we need to label that is that it wasn't completely lost on him. It wasn't a futile effort by John. Next point. Herod lacked conviction. He used worldly wisdom and he feared the people. It's kind of all bundled together. He lacked conviction, used worldly wisdom and feared the people. We have to look at him as a character study. So here he is. He's the authority figure. He's perplexed, yet hearing him gladly. He's intrigued with John. His wife has a grudge against him, so he throws him in jail, but won't kill him. So he's kind of like, you can tell he's sort of wrestling with things. Then he goes and he throws this party. And these weren't just like like a banquet, like we think of like a banquet. This is this was a throwdown, Okay. This is a rager. So they were known for. They would just go crazy. Especially when you're getting all the all those military guys and all the powerful people together and all this kind of stuff. And so he throws this wild party and he um it his wife's daughter comes in and dances for them, which is not as uh in that time it would have been different than maybe some of, of what you would assume there. That happens. He's like, oh, you know, what, I'll give you whatever I want. Like this was when he's like, even like half of, of my kingdom. Like that's, I don't know. I, I read a lot of those when, it, when I got to the point where I was able to pull some of those commentaries off the shelf and read some of these scholars. A lot of them are pointing to the fact that, yeah, that's like the statement of like a drunken man right there. You know, like that's not, that's not a normal thing. And so this girl is like, mom, what should I ask for? And she's like, behead John the Baptist. And so his worldly wisdom and his lack of conviction and his fear of the people, he's like, well, I don't really want to, but I have to, because I said I would. Instead of putting his foot down and be like, I am, I'm Herod. Like I am the king or whatever. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't care what you think about me. But he caved because he was weak Fearful of the people, lacking conviction, using worldly wisdom. I was like, well, I'm sorry to have to do this, but I said I would. So then he sends the order and they literally bring in a platter, you know, stupid, right? God wants us to know that. Last point in what does he want us to know? That from start to finish, John's life pointed to the truth as found in Christ alone. From the beginning of his life, from what we know of the scriptures, when his mom was pregnant with him, all the way to the very end, everything we know about his life shows that he was devoted to bringing the truth of Jesus to the people. 
Now, truth, truth can be understood in a lot of ways. I mean, it isn't really just about what's right and what's wrong. I was, I got, I was telling Taylor Vernon earlier, I got lost in a, in like a Dallas Willard, like black hole of teaching. Uh, if you ever read Dallas Willard, it's very easy to do. Uh, he's so compelling and you're like, about six minutes in, you're like, I have no idea what I've read for the last six minutes, but I want to, I need to. And I was just reading a lot of, of his teaching on truth and what it is and what it isn't and how, just how it shows up in our world. And he, he says something that I think is very consistent with what Jesus says. It says that truth is, truth is what, when a, an idea matches up with reality. And when you have this, you have an idea, if it is consistent with what is really happening, that that's what truth is. It isn't so much truth and lies in, a, in, a, in an ethics kind of way. We're talking about the, the, this like macro kind of truth where um, Jesus comes and he is telling us what is actually real, what is really happening, that the kingdom of God is real, that the, that the, the, the God of the universe is, is real, that, that we are living in this illusion world that makes everything about uh, self and uh, money and prosperity and all these kinds of things. That is, that is an illusion. And Jesus has come to connect our, like, us completely to what is real. Which is like none of those things define you. God defines you. That's, that's what's real. That he's constantly inviting us into reality. And so Jesus has revealed reality to us and... Now we live in that reality. We invite other people to live in that reality. And that's what John the Baptist did his whole life. He said, hey, everything that you are, have been taught is incorrect. There's one who is coming that is, is going to open up the gates to reality. Don't focus on me. Focus on him. I'm not even worthy to, to untie his sandals. And he preached and he preached and he preached. And one day Jesus shows up at the river and was like, baptize me. And John was like, you, you're the guy. You're the reality. And his whole life was devoted to inviting people into the reality that Jesus has come to provide. And so we look at this life and it's a model for us of something. So you take all those things from the text that I went through like pretty, pretty quickly um, and all those things we're supposed to know, they kind of they paint this picture. And I think to go from all that, like all that information in that text, like, okay, what are we supposed to do with all of that? I think we're supposed to do a lot of things with it, but I'm just going to sum it up in one thing, which I think that we're supposed to be a vessel of truth. I think that that is the, is the takeaway. We look at John the Baptist. Was he a vessel of truth his entire life? I think that he was. I think we're supposed to look at even the end of his life and how weird that story is in a lot of ways. I think it's supposed to like, help us have even, an even more clear vision for what our lives look like. To be a vessel of truth. I want to break that into, into sort of two different, two different categories here in my last couple minutes. I'd like to speak to the parents in the room and the grandparents as well, because some of you grandparents are as much of a parent to your grandkids as their parents are in some ways. Um, the grandparent voice carries a lot of weight. 
And so I don't want to just speak to the parents. I want to speak to the grandparents as well. Now, if you're not a parent or a grandparent, I'm not saying you can just check out. All right. But I want to specifically talk because John the Baptist was a, he was a vessel of truth from the womb. And a lot of you have prayed the same things over your little ones, haven't you? As soon as you find out that there's a baby, you start praying. And I know a lot of you, I've heard your prayers uh, for them and talked with, with many of you, not all of you, but a lot of you. And I know that you have really deep, beautiful hopes for your kids, especially when it comes to Jesus, to loving him and to being a force for him. Now you are training them in the truth. That's what you do. Your kids are not going to accidentally be vessels of truth. You are training them to do that, parents, grandparents. Like you are the drill sergeants for this. You're the coaches for this. You're the teachers for this. You're the models for this. That in your, in your words and in your actions, you are training them in what is true. They listen to how you talk to them. They listen to how you talk about them. They listen as you're driving one place to the other, as mom and dad in front of you having a conversation. They listening. They are. You did it, didn't you? They're listening. They listen to your words. They watch your actions. And they need them to be consistent. And in so doing, you are helping them to understand what is true in that, in that macro sense, like what, what is connected to reality in their lives. They're counting on you to help them interpret their lives. They don't, they don't know what to do with things. They, have, they don't understand. That's not an insult to children because we are, have all been children, but they, they don't understand certain things. And so as they grow up, they're counting on you to help them interpret it. And a lot of it has to do with, with success and failure and how to process that in a, they kind of have, they really are given only one option by the world, which is these worldly standards. And then you come in and you offer them a new option. If that makes any sense. So take school, they start going to school and it starts off pretty easy and then it starts to get harder they start to not do so well on some tests and some assignments. They start to struggle with some concepts. And in a worldly sense, they're t- they are taught how to interpret that success or failure through a certain lens. That is an illusion. You come in and you bring in a different lens that is in touch with reality. Then the kingdom of God, this is, this is the role that academics plays with us. Then there's successes and failures in terms of, of, of like social benchmarks. They have these ups and downs and these friendships that come and go and these breakups and you know, all these kinds of things. And, and there's all these things that are going on and they don't really know what to do with it other than how the world tells them and how their friends are telling them and how everything else is telling them to deal with it. And you bring them into another option. You interpret that for them. They're counting on you to do that in a way that's in touch with reality. That successes and, 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 and failures in regard to sports or music things or uh, gymnastics or any, any sort of, of, of hobby kind of thing, 
They don't know how to deal with success or failure. You got to teach them how. Otherwise, they will deal with it in the way that the world tells them to, which will have them in counseling one day. Now, I'm pro-counseling. Don't hear me being anti-counseling, but wouldn't you like them to be in counseling for something other than that? Other than my parents never really taught me how to process academic success and failure. And now I just project it onto every area of my whole life. So they're counting on you to help them do that. Even, even in, a, in, a, like in their walks with the Lord, to help them process sin and struggles, to help them see themselves as God sees them. They're counting on you to do that. Dallas Willard said something that I think is worth writing down. He said a lot of things, but he says, when we lose truth, there's nothing left but conformity. When we lose truth, there's nothing left but conformity. It, parents, if you, are, if you are not bringing them the truth of God's kingdom and helping them process all these different things in their lives, they are left with nothing else but conformity to what Paul would call the patterns of this world. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is this kingdom of God thing. And so as parents and as grandparents, you, you have to see yourself as a discipler in that sense of sitting down with your kids and helping them place the right amount of weight on these different parts of their lives. And as you train them up to have a kingdom perspective on all those things, you're helping them not live in the conforming illusion that the world offers. You're bringing them the reality of the kingdom of God. And when that is happening in the way that you talk and the way that you act and they see that consistency, they don't want to live over here in illusion. They want to live in reality because they're like, oh, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, all these adults at church, all these people that are living over here in this reality, that's where I want to be. This is, is a lie. This is what is true. Why would I want my life built on anything else? So be a vessel of truth, parents and grandparents, and friends, uh, like if you're friends with someone who has kids, uh, join them in that. If you're a part of this church family and you don't have kids of your own or they're all far away, just you're a part of this whole process. We as a church are a part of this side of the equation. Second thing, this is where I close. Adults. So the first, I want to talk to parents and grandparents. I'm just talking to everybody. Talking to everybody. John the Baptist was faithful in in whatever setting he was in. According to what we have in front of us in God's word, whether he was uh, preaching and teaching before he met Jesus or in the baptizing of Jesus or in his ongoing ministry, he was faithful in every setting he was in. And so for us to be a vessel of truth in every setting... I think that's a part of what God wants us to walk away with. That in your marriage and in your friendships and with your neighbors and where you work and on social media and everywhere that we are vessels of truth. Not necessarily vessels of opinion. Not necessarily vessels of other things. That we're in that kingdom of God, like what, it, what does reality say about this? We are the truth tellers. Like we're like the, let's all put our hands in the middle. Truth tellers on three kind of thing. We are the truth tellers. 
That's who Jesus, that's, he's entrusted that to us. So going back through this, some of the points of the story, when God, remember how God was doing something, everyone wanted to understand it. They're trying to figure out what it is. That happens anytime that God is working. Uh, God is doing something. God is transforming. God is shaking things up. And we're the ones that know the answer. We're the, we're the ones that know the answer. And so we have to bring that to the people. We can't shy away from the truth, even if it might get weird. I mean, I'm sure that John the Baptist, it probably ran through his mind, like, how honest should I be with Herod about this? Could this get my head on a platter one day? You know, I don't know if he thought that. Probably not. But whatever went through his head, if he was trying to weigh out his options, he landed in a place that, no, I got to be faithful with the truth. This guy can't do this. He can't, he can't think that this is okay. He can't disrespect God and disrespect his wife and his family and himself and all of us that he is leading. He can't, he can't do this. And God has sent me here to tell him the truth. We're, it may not be clear how to say it sometimes, but we can speak the truth in love. He can show us how to do that. We can't get upset or discouraged if people if it's received strangely. Remember, Herod was perplexed, but yet he wanted to hear more. We can't we we can't make our decisions on am I going to bring the truth into this situation or not the the, the truth of God's kingdom am I going to speak into this like words of life or not? We can't try to anticipate it and say like, well, but they might not like it or they may not like this and this 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 this. If God's telling you to do it, you have to do it. And even if they are perplexed, it's not necessarily a bad thing. If there's tension, ten, tension isn't always bad. We can come up with a bunch of reasons to not want to tell people the truth. At the end of the day, though, we're only obedient to the Lord. And there was something about John's life. Like there's an, there was an integrity about his life that kept Herod like connected to him. And the same goes for us, I think. That when we are being consistent in word and deed in the context of all those relationships and we speak truth to something, if you are living a hypocritical life, they will just reject you immediately. But if there's integrity about our lives, that I, think, I think that's where that perplexed but wanted to hear more tension comes from. I think that God uses that. And so it's very important that we are consistent in the way that we live our lives. And so if something is sinful, are we the truth tellers that are going to call it for what it is? We, we need to be. Not based on our opinions, we just go back to the word of God and we say this is inconsistent with reality. And there's a lot of opportunity to do that in our world. We can't be afraid to say something is wrong. We also can't be afraid to say something is right. And I personally think that as Christians, if we are living those, if we are living in that consistent, those consistent lives, but we're also quick to say something is wrong, and we're also quick to affirm something. You know, people say that about the church a lot. It's like, oh well, they're, they're, you're kind of known more for what you what you hate than what you love, what you're against than what you're for. I can agree with that. So, we're, if we're speaking words of life, let's speak like affirming, encouraging words of life. It's bring that truth as well. That telling the truth isn't just bringing bad news. It's also bringing like really good affirming news. Very encouraging news. 
But if, if Colossians 3.17 is, is correct, this is what it says. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Words, deeds. Whatever you do in word or, do, or, word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then that's, that's who we are. That's what we're called to be. Jesus loves you and me enough to come to us and tell us the truth. He came to us and said, you, uh, you were born broken. You're born spiritually dead. I have come to make you spiritually alive. You have to lay your life down. Deny yourself. Admit that you need me to save you and I'll do it. Aren't you glad that he was honest with us? Aren't you glad that he was a vessel of truth to our world? Aren't you glad he didn't be like, well, it might be weird. They might not be want to be told they're wrong. I'm glad he told me I was wrong. I'm glad he told me that I needed him. He has made it safe for us to be honest. And so now we just get to go do that with others as well. So, what does that look like for you or for me? It's probably a little different. Probably all over the room, if we were to, to really say, what does it look like for me to be a vessel of truth? There'd be a lot of overlap and there'd be a lot of like, differences as well. And that's what's, I mean, God's so big, he can lead each one of us with great detail into what that looks like. But I believe that God wants us to know these things and I want to think he wants us to do these things. He wants us to learn from even a passage of scripture that seems a little bit cryptic at first. And you're like, why is this in here? It's just a, a transitional like, point in the, like, the plot going forward. And I think there's, there's something for us as well. And I just have to be a steward of what that is for me and you have to be a steward of what that is for you. And so our response time will be, uh, it will be the way that we normally do response times. You can come and kneel and pray if you would like to. Um, there'll be a couple of us on the front row that would be willing to pray with you if you just want to talk about any of this stuff. If you want to talk about what it means to follow after Jesus, uh, we would love to talk to you about that. That's what we're here to do. And you can sing, you can give at these giving stations on the side, or you can receive communion. And is there, uh, is there a greater illustration of the truth than communion, you know? Jesus saying, you need my body and my blood. Do you want it? And you say yes. And you take, the, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. He is offering what we need. He is bringing us the truth that we receive. And so whatever is stirring within you, just be faithful in these closing moments to, to deal with that before we dismiss and everything kind of gets crazy again. Uh, yeah, steward this time well let me pray for us let's stand together i've been sitting for a while sorry about that god i'm grateful for uh for john the baptist i'm thankful for his example i'm thankful that um that he was faithful to the end
thankful for his example of what it means to bring truth into a difficult situation. And how he pointed to you, Jesus, because you brought truth into a, a severely difficult situation. And so our desire, I mean, none of us in here who are Christians would look at you and say, I don't want to be a truth teller. I don't want to be a vessel of truth in a world that is living in illusion. We all want to do that. We desire to do that. We just need your help to do so. And so whether that applies to parenting or grandparenting or being a friend or being a spouse or being a worker or being a neighbor or whatever other environment, would you help us as we sing, as we pray, as we receive communion, as we give? Would you help us to know what you want us to walk out with this morning? We love you deeply. We thank you that you loved us first. We pray uh, all these things in the good and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, our communion tables are open. These are all just, just optional ways to respond. You, you respond in whatever way connects with you the most as the band leads us.